Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you please take your Bibles, open them to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 9 as we left off in verse 8 in a Bible study that I entitled, Prophecy Encourages Our Faith. Prophecy Encourages Our Faith. One of the great enemies of our faith is doubt, having second thoughts, questioning our decisions, Question, looking, kind of looking backwards and going, well, you know, if I didn't make this decision, didn't make that decision, I wouldn't be where I am today, instead of trusting God in the moment and trusting God that even if it was what could be considered a bad decision, trusting God that he's going to work all things together for the good, that nothing's wasted with him, that no matter which way we go, we were seeking him, we were praying, and then we made a decision by faith. And so be careful of the hesitations the vacillations, having that unbelievable unsurety, the weakness of our wavering. Someone once said, doubt makes the mountain that faith moves. And it really depends on what we want to look at. The great mountains in front of us, the great impossibilities, or the faith that God has given us to face our mountains. And there seems to be no lack today of attack upon the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. The, the very essence of God's word. That, that The Bible doesn't contain words of God. The Bible is the word of God. It is truth through and through. The Bible couldn't be clear of its own declaration that all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for your life and mine. And I think the attacks upon the Bible are such because if you can undermine the basis of God's truth, the truth that God's revealed, then we'll be shaky because we're just depending on our own opinions and trying to figure things out. And if we can under, if, if, if someone, the enemy of our souls, a friend, a, a skeptic can undermine the truth that God has revealed, then our faith in God will shake too. And so jot this down in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter, an eyewitness, a friend, a confidant of Jesus, a follower, someone who committed his life to following Jesus, left everyone and everything, someone who went all the way, faced a martyr's death, wrote this in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. For we were not making up clever stories. Again, reading from the New Living Translation. We were not making up clever stories. Or the New King James, we weren't sharing with you cunningly devised fables. When we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. What, we, what Peter wrote, what Peter shared wasn't made up. It wasn't some story to try to convince you. Didn't want to take advantage of you. He wasn't trying to be clever with you, manipulate you, try to have some cunning fable in order for you to follow God. He was telling you the truth. He was an eyewitness. You could trust him because he was there. And in our study in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, that section, the last part of Daniel is prophetic. 
Chapters 1 through 6 are personal. We got to know Daniel as a man, as a prophet, as a man of God, a man of faith, someone who trusted God with his life. In the second half, the last half of the book of Daniel is prophetic because prophecy is powerful. Prophecy, we learn, is history in advance. God speaking of and writing of things in the future as if they already happened. And only God can do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. Only God can do it. You see, God is outside of time and space. The Bible declares him to be all-knowing or omniscient. He has foreknowledge. So he knows what, being all-knowing, he knows what's going to happen ahead of time before it happens. And so on occasion, much of the Bible is filled with those very prophetic proclamations. Again, jot it down in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. It says, yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so as to be, so we could be made whole. He was whipped and so we could be healed. That's why, because of God's ability to know the future in Isaiah 53, he could predict the crucifixion, not only the death of the Savior, but how exactly it would happen before it was even invented. See, God is all-knowing, and he knows what he's doing in your life. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is an obscure passage or so, is when Jesus is feeding the thousands, and he sends the brother away to go get the, to go get the resources. And there's that question, how are we going to know? I don't understand. I don't see how we're going to... What, what's, you know, those are all paraphrases. And Jesus, the, the text says that Jesus told, was testing him. Why? Because Jesus already knew what he was going to do in your life, in their lives, and in your life as well by application. You're going through these things and years go, I don't understand. Why have you allowed this? I don't think this is going to happen. There's not enough money in the bank. I don't know what the future holds. What about this over here? And what about my boss? What's going to happen when I go in on Monday? What hap- and, and, and it's almost like Jesus saying, look, I've led you in this way to test you because I already know what I'm going to do in your life. I already know the outcome. And because you love me and because you have faith in me, God says, trust me. Because I, you don't know the outcome, but I know the outcome. And just trust me. But even circumstances. We don't need another person to cause us to doubt God. We have the situation. You know, the little ones we can handle. The ones that require five or ten bucks, we'll pull it out of our pocket, we'll write a check. The one that requires five or ten million, I mean, we don't even think, what do you mean, five or ten million? I don't even have five or ten bucks in my pocket. But do you think that God can't provide five or ten million as easy as he can provide five or ten bucks? God's faithful. He can cure the headache. He can cure the cancer. God is faithful. And he knows what he's doing in your life today. He wants you to be reminded that you, your life, is not out of control. He knows the future. And when we lack that memory, we're just like, I don't know, maybe God's forgotten me. Maybe God's abandoned me, just like David felt many, many times. God has sprinkled throughout the scriptures these prophetic insights just to remind you, you know, God knows what he's doing. (laughs) He knows the future. He put it in writing. He staked his character. He staked all of his reputation upon what he predicted to come to pass. And in chapter 8, 
as we're launching into the prophetic part of Daniel, there's another great insight on prophecy. It's a fascinating insight that only is so powerful when you look back to see how it was fulfilled. Because often prophetically, in biblical prophecy, we find types and shadows of still yet coming events. A person or event that can form a picture of what's up ahead. A great example of that, a great example of that is in Genesis chapter 22, the true story, as we've studied through in Hebrews, the true story of Abraham taking his son, remember his only son, although it wasn't his only son because that phrase doesn't mean only in number, it means unique. As Jesus Christ declared to be the unique son of God, unlike any other. In Genesis 22, Abraham takes his only son up to Mount Moriah, at the top of Mount Moriah, in obedience to God, to present him as a sacrifice, which just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. As you look at it, just moment by moment. But this becomes a picture. As God leads this, it becomes a picture of God the Father sacrificing his only begotten son. So not only is this true story of Abraham his life story, but it also becomes prophetic, predictive of the future. And it's also the first mention of love in the Bible. And the first mention of love in the Bible has to do with a father's love of his son. A son submitting willingly, obediently to the point of death. And that very same mountaintop would become the place where Jesus Christ himself was crucified. The place where once again, like in Abraham, Abraham was, God told Abraham, I will provide myself a sacrifice you fast forward a few thousand years, God indeed provided, the Father did indeed provide himself the sacrifice, God the Son dying for your sins and mine. So as we come to chapter 8, the second half, we study this coming world leader, the Antichrist, but he's pictured as a human leader in history, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. So notice with me in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 8. So as then one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended through the south and the east toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him by destroying his temple. The army, verse 12, of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifice was halted, the truth was overthrown, and the horn succeeded in everything it did. Verse 13. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and the heaven's armies be trampled on? And the other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. Now remember, a horn, don't get confused here with the many horns mentioned. Because horns in the Bible represent power and authority. And we learn the definition of something by its context. 
We want to pay careful attention to the context. They're often used to also to identify people. So this little horn, by way you note takers, is not the same little horn from chapter 7. We got a whole new description, a whole new definite, a whole new identification of using a similar description. And you find this very often in scriptures. You got to make sure that the context defines exactly what you're reading. So there the ruler comes out of the last empire, that small little horn, the revived Roman Empire. He's the Antichrist himself. This horn, chapter 8, comes out of the Grecian Empire and is a shadow or a type of the Antichrist, a picture. Chapter 7 speaks of four empires, but chapter 8 now narrows it down to two, and that's the difference. This one is a type. The one in chapter 7 is the actual person himself. And so a distinct change has taken place here in chapter 8. The language of chapter 8 now reverts back to the Hebrew. Now remember, Daniel has been written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And now, beginning in chapter chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 28, the language shifted. It started off in Hebrew... Then it shifted to Aramaic, and now the rest of the book now will be written in Hebrew. And you go, Ed, what's the significance of that? Well, God never does anything just to do it, just so prophecy buffs can put a YouTube video up or nothing. It's not, there's meaning in this. And here's a meaning. You ready? The, the reality of Hebrew being used, Hebrew is the language of the Jews. Now, in chapter one, we learned of the fall of Jerusalem. And then beginning in chapter 2 verse through chapter 7, we began to learn about the world and the world rulers. So the language shifts a little bit. Aramaic's being used now, the language of the day. And now back focusing, the rest of the book focusing on Israel, goes back to Hebrew. And the other nations will treat the nation of Israel. Hebrew's going to be the rest of the book. So you can jot that down if anyone, you're ever in a Bible trivia and you go, how many languages were used to write the Bible? What's the answer? What's the answer? What's the answer over here? Say it out loud. Okay, so the languages are Hebrew. What's the next one? Aramaic and the New Testament, Greek. And just for a side note, the New Testament was written in what's known as Koine Greek, which would be the common language of the day so that everybody could understand it. It wasn't the high, although some of the Greek was written, although it was Koine, some of it, like some of Paul's writings, were hit, written in a high level of Greek, but most of it is very common because it's God's intention for us to understand the Bible. It's one of the reasons why God has gifted our church and the church, capital C, with the, with the role of pastor-teacher so that God would give a spiritual gift for explanation so that not only would you know God's word, you would know what God's word means. And then third, secondly, you would know what God's word means to me. And then thirdly, you would know what God word, God's word means to me in this situation right now. And we're grateful for those men that have taught us and those women that have taught us over the years. So we read now in chapter 8 of our earthly ruler that gives us a great picture of what will happen in the future. In chapter 11, it's laid out in more detail. But we, before we jump into the rest of the text, we need to ask the question, why? 
Why a focus again repetitively on this coming imposter? This focus, of course, is by type why, and by picture. Why? Why does, it keep, why does it keep being repeated in Daniel? And actually, many times in the scriptures. Well, God wants the children of Israel to know what's going to happen in the future so that they'll be equipped and prepared and not be deceived by a false messiah. It's one of the purposes of the truth. When you know the truth, you'll be able to discern a lie much quicker. Now, some people choose to study lies more often than they study the truth. I know that was a trap that I fell into as a new believer. I was so zealous for the gospel. I was so zealous to teach the truth. I was so zealous to win people to Christ. I was so, and I had a particular leaning toward apologetics. It, it, it fit well with my thinking. And so what I did is I began to study the Jehovah Witnesses very deeply. I would read everything I could about what they believe and how they believe. And I'd buy this book and I'd study the Jehovah Witnesses. And then I would follow them around our neighborhood when they were walking around and just saying, you know, don't listen to them. And then talk to them on the sidewalk. Don't listen to them. And I remember one time, very particularly, we were driving by. I had my son, Eddie, in the front seat. We were driving down the road near, he's just a little guy. And we're driving, and I saw the Jehovah Witnesses. I flipped a U turned, parked the car, took Eddie up there and said, what are you guys doing lying to the... Like I was zealous, just say, it was zealous. I didn't win one Jehovah Witness to the Lord, but man, did I try. But I made a great error, not only in my approach. Let me just say that is not the most effective approach to chase down people and scare them. Um, as you see you screech your car, come up, speed up, pull, pull their little kid, walk, run over and go, you liars. And I don't remember what I said exactly, but I'm sure they were scared. But I also made a grave error is spending all that time learning about falsehood instead of just learning about the truth. Because one of the things I believe I would have learned faster if I studied the truth, the natural, the natural addition would have been the right approach. I would have learned grace mercy. I would have learned at an earlier age. Now, God had a school for me, so I had to learn it that way. But I would have learned at a much earlier age, walking with the Lord, that delivery is everything. That your point isn't to win an argument, it's to win a soul. And you may indeed be so versed in all the verses and just knock down every single argument and just be so strong in what you say, and you might win the argument, but you would lose the soul. And in reality, we want, to, we want both. We want to win the argument and the soul. We, but we want to place the soul in the highest priority. So what did they do many years ago? And they may still do it today, but what did they do many years ago when you would take a job as a teller in a bank? They wouldn't lay out, take them into a room and lay out all the counterfeit bills that have ever been made and say, okay, you got a week, get used to the counterfeits. No, it was much simpler than that. They gave them the real thing and said, really get to know the real thing. Feel it, touch it, crinkle it, smell it, pay attention, know the real thing. Because when you know the real thing, when you understand what a real dollar bill looks like, smells like, you got all the hidden features in it, all the little colored string in it, when you see the, the strip in there, when you hold it up to light, when you see, when you know the real thing, you will know a falsehood when it's in your hand immediately. You don't need to compare it to all the ones that you studied. You'll know because you know the truth. And so the truth is important. The truth is important because it inoculates you from the falsehood. 
People are making up new lies every day, all day. But the Bible says, in Romans, says to be excellent in what is good and to be innocent in what is evil. So whatever spare time you may have, and I know spare time is at a loss these days. Our culture is just pressing, pressing, pressing. We don't have a lot. But whatever spare time you have, it will do you well to know the truth. Not only will the truth set you free, it'll prepare you. When you know the truth of the gospel, a lie, like somebody comes up to you and go, well, I just want you to know that really the Bible says that God had a wife. And you're like, bro, that, that just simply isn't true. Why are you coming up to me? I'm with my kids getting ice cream. Why are you telling me God has a wife, bro? Where is that in the Bible? And they go, oh, here, right here, it's right here. And, and then you know that scripture already because you've been reading the Bible. You, you're like, that's not what that says. What, what are you talking about? That's not what that says. And they say, well, how do you know? Are you some seminary? No, I, you just look him in the eye. You go, no, I know the truth. I know the God that you're misrepresenting. Have you ever heard it? And instead of arguing with them, it just turns into a witnessing thing. If they stick around, you know, they may not stick around, but it just turns into an opportunity to witness. It says, you know, there's a God in heaven that loves you. A God in heaven that wouldn't send you around lying to people at the ice cream shop. A God in heaven that died, sent his own son to die for you. You don't have to make up these fanciful things. Who told you that? You didn't learn. I, one, of the, one of the techniques that I use when we get down to a false teaching like that is I'll say, I'll use this phrase. You might want to jot it down and remember. I said, who taught you that because you didn't learn that in the Bible? If, if you just had a Bible on, a, on an island somewhere and you were reading it, and the Holy Spirit was enlivening you, bringing you to faith in Christ, and then you, were, you got born again right on an island because you had a Bible. Somebody gave you a Bible, dropped you off an island, and said goodbye, and you were stuck there forever. No one ever witnessed to you. No one ever talked to you. No one ever invited you to church. You never watched the, uh, you never listened to radio, so watched TV, TV. But you had a Bible. The Holy Spirit used the Bible to convict you of sin. You were born again right there. Holy Spirit, yourself on an island. You would not come to that conclusion that you come to. Somebody had to teach you that. You didn't come up with that by yourself. You're just sharing somebody, some, someone that told you that you believe them. You, the Bible doesn't teach that. So why the repetition in the Bible? The repetition in the Bible, when you come up and say, oh, I already know that, I already know that. Perhaps you do, but if you ever come to somebody and go, oh, I already know that, pause, and instead of saying, I already know that, read it again, receive it as fresh truth, and then thank God that you know it. Because he's prepping you and setting you up so that you dwell in the truth. You live in the truth. And it will be much harder for you to be deceived. It will be much harder for you to be deceived. God hasn't changed. He can't change. And even today, he warns us over and over again so that we might not be ripped off by lies. That we might not be hurt he warns the lost that judgment is coming. Oh, I know they make fun of you. I know they make fun of us. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Get in the ark. The ark, get in Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will rescue you. Judgment's coming. Judgment's, and they're mocking you just like they mock Noah. But not everyone. And why would God send a Noah? And why would God send you? And why would God send me with the message of the truth? So that people might be warned and they might be saved. God, he warns the saved. 
He warns you and me that sin is destructive. Isn't that the more common warning? Oh, it's not just to dwell on the truth, but also this pulpit represents a warning of God, don't mess around with sin, you'll regret it. Don't mess around with sin, it harms the glory of God, it dishonors God, it separates you from God, it ruins your life, it hurts other people, it brings heartache and sorrow to everything, it hurts the people that love you, it ruins your witness and your testimony. For those of you reading through the Proverbs, today Proverbs reminded us, don't mess around with sexual sin. It'll ruin you. And over and over, God says, watch out. Sin will destroy you. And with every warning, though, God gives a way out. There's always hope. And I believe it's essential that we live in this world touching, keeping our touch light, with a light touch. The Bible describes us as foreigners in a foreign land. The Bible describes us as pilgrims just passing through. The Bible describes us as nomads. Not not to put our tent stakes down too deeply. That we as believers would possess our possessions and not let them possess us. So what does the Bible do? It's always pointing us upward. When God gives us a picture and a type, when he speaks to us prophetically of something that hasn't happened yet, he means it. When he speaks of the rapture of the church, God means that. When he speaks of the great tribulation period, God means that. When he speaks of the second coming of Christ, he means that. When he speaks of the great white throne judgment where your life will be judged for your decision to follow Christ or not, he means that. Believers, when he speaks of the future Bema Seat judgment where your works as Christians will be judged, some will come out so sparkling they'll pass through the fire, but some will just be burned up. You know, whenever I think of works being burned up, I look back and go, man, that must, I just wasted it. And there's even a group that God warns. Jesus himself says, there's even a group to, so that we might check our hearts regularly. There's a group that says, well, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do this in your name? And the response from Jesus is, hey, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He speaks, like, like that's been written thousands of years ago to warn the religious Yeah, but I've been in church my whole life. I did what the priest told me to do. I followed my parents. I I went, I I never missed. I dressed up. I, I was a moral person. Yeah, but you never sealed the deal by repenting of your sins. You don't repent of your, uh, of not being nice to God. You don't say, God, I repent of not being nice. No, you say, God, I repent of my sinful rebellion and life of rebelling against you. I repent of my sins. Don't think for a moment that being in this room, watching online, listening to Christian radio, getting rid of all your secular music and listening to Christian music, that's going to get you into heaven. The only thing that you will, the only thing that gets you and me into heaven is a man must be born again. A woman must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Religion won't get you in. And don't let it ever be said that I haven't repeated more over and over again what the Bible teaches. Let it never be said in your life that I didn't warn you. That this date will be stamped in your heart and your mind. That that pastor at Calvary warned me. He warned me. 
that religion's not enough. It's a cheap substitute for a real relationship with God. It's in a crude example, it's the difference of having a picture of your favorite car hanging on your wall and the keys to that car in your garage. You choose. You can look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it, or you could drive it. Man, the Lord is so good to warn us. So he repeats things for us. And so far up to chapter 8 in the first few verses, we learn about the Medo-Persian Empire in the ram. Then came the Grecian Empire, symbolized by the goat. And the huge horn that we're learning now from the goat, Alexander the Great, we know who he is looking back in history. He fell and was broken off on June 10th, 323 B.C. And while he was dying, the question came up, what will happen to your kingdom? And recorded as one of the last sentences Alexander spoke, he said, give my kingdom to the strong. Well, that was such an open-ended statement, and it caused quite a competition. And eventually, the Grecian Empire was divided among four generals. Cassander took over all of the area of Macedonia and Greece. Lysimus took over Asia Minor and Thrace. Seleucus took over Syria and Babylonia. And Ptolemy took Egypt, Israel, and the island of Cyprus. Notice again, verse 9. Come back to the text with me. Then one of the prominent horns came, a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south, to the east, and toward the glorious land of Israel. Out of those four horns came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the glorious land. What land? Well, it says for us right here, the land of Israel. As we approach the last days, it would be good again to be reminded that the central focus in the last days is not the United States of America. It is not Europe. It is not Africa. It is not Antarctica. The center of the world prophetically is Israel. Jerusalem to be exact, but Israel. Everything points to Israel. You want to keep track of the prophetic clock? Keep your eyes on Israel. Watch the news in Israel. Make sure all of your news notifications have a whole new setup and subscribe to the newspapers in Israel. Subscribe to the archaeological finds in Israel. Find out. Watch what's happening. Subscribe to the prophetic website. Watch what's happening in Israel. That's where it's important. So the land, it's toward the land of Israel. This little horn also had a name. His name, Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV. Better known and commonly referred to as Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the eighth king of the Syrian Seleucid dynasty, 175 to 164 BC. Epiphanes should sound familiar to you. Epiphanes was a name that he took upon himself. Literally, it re- he required that people call him Antiochus Epiphanes because the definition of Epiphanes is Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. That was the name. And basically he was saying, I want you to say that I am God in the flesh. That was how he named himself among the people. He was a vicious attacker of the Jews, killing some 80,000 Jews in a single march and selling another 40,000 Jews into slavery. I quote 
The practice of circumcision, the reading of the law, the observance of sacrifices, the festivals, were all forbidden under his leadership on the pain of death. Devout Jews were forced to eat swine's flesh, to offer up ritually unclean animals, and to defy themselves with every kind of uncleanness and profanation, end quote. He rededicated the Jewish temple to the Greek god Zeus. He changed the sacrificial system and decided no more would lamb, goats, and rams be offered. He offered only pigs on the brass altar. He himself offered up the sacrifice of a pig and then took of its juices and blood and spread it throughout the temple. This event has come to be known as, you probably remember it this way, it's not referred to, it's the uh, commander of heaven's army, it says, offered him by destroying the temple. But in the, old, in the New King James, it's known as the abomination of desolation. And it first happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. Roman historian Josephus records these accounts as to, as to First and Second Maccabees, the uninspired historical books, the historical books that you find in the Apocrypha. In the midst of this, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus and his sons led a group of zealots against Antiochus Epiphanes, later to be known as the Maccabean Revolt. They drove out the Syrian army to cleanse the temple, restoring the sacrifices. But when they arrived, there's only enough oil for the menorah to burn for one day. And miraculously, it lasted for eight days. This has been commemorated by the yearly feast, the celebration of Hanukkah by the Jews, the festival of lights, the rededication of the temple. Jesus actually celebrated this very feast in John chapter 7. And so notice in verse 15, Gabriel now gives the interpretation. It says, as I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me. And I heard a human voice calling out for the Uli River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. And as Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. Now some of you, as I was giving the introduction, might have wondered, how do you know that what we see here actually is a picture and a type of what is to come? Well, the Bible says so. Gabriel tells him ahead of time, this is for the end. This is what's going to happen later. You see its historic significance in real time, but it also extends to the end. Verse 18, and while he was speaking, I fainted and I lay there with my face to the ground, but Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. Then he said, I'm here to tell you that what will happen later in the time of wrath, the time of wrath you would know as the time of the great tribulation period. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at, at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong. But not by his own power, he will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything that he does. He'll destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He'll be the master, mark this, this is where we'll wind down today. He will be the master of deception. So we have the countries being named, 
We have Alexander the Great being identified. We have Antiochus Epiphanes being identified as pictures and types of what will happen during the Great Tribulation period. He'll be a master of deception. Will become great. Uh, he will become arrogant. He'll destroy many without warning. He'll even take on the prince of the princes in battle. And there he'll be broken, though not by human power. This vision about 2,300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep the vision a secret. When I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days, afterward I got up and performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Don't you think that's an understatement? I was greatly troubled by this wild dream that not only is the near future, but the end of the world. I was greatly troubled. He lays all out the Antichrist when he comes. He'll come on the scene and appear to be the solution to the world's problems. So let me ask you a question, church. You guys online, say it out loud on the radio. Is it possible for the world, I mean the entire globe, doesn't matter what language you speak, doesn't matter uh, what religion you follow, is it possible for the whole world to be so desperate because of a situation to cry out for someone to help them? The whole world, yes or no? Uh, is it possible for a whole world to agree with, to a one world money system just to help the cause? Is it possible for a, a whole world to say, well, we'll kind of yield ourselves to this general religious belief because if it's going to help the cause, do you see the pictures and types of what we're facing right now? looking toward the end? Do you believe, as I've implored over and over again, do you believe that you're in the last days? That the way the Bible describes things, perhaps even 20, 25 years ago, you'd shake your head and say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't think so. I can kind of see they invented this barcode or I have a chip in my credit card. I can kind of see it now. I maybe... Maybe 25 years ago, we're like, maybe kind of. Aren't we past the maybe kind of stage, church? Doesn't that develop an urgency in your heart? Not just to understand prophecy, although I believe you should. We really believe what the Bible teaches, and we much of the Bible is prophetic. We believe it. We teach it. It changes our lives. But isn't it more important that even though we believe it, even though we teach it, isn't the most important part is that it changes your life, that it changes your behavior, that, that it causes you to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God who predicts the future, writes it down in advance and says, trust me. Oh, but Lord, I don't see it yet. Trust me. Go get the fish. Go find something to feed these people. Oh, I don't see it. I don't see how it could happen. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I already know. Just do what I say. I already know. I don't, you know, I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm not going to lay it out for you. Like, I already know what I'm going to do. What I want from you right now is trust me and do what I tell you to do. It just seems to be the last day's message. He says, don't become a prophecy buff. And don't get caught up, caught up in things that is a convenient way to hide your disobedience. Okay, so you can share with me all the prophecies explaining to me Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it hasn't changed your life. You just become a prophecy buff. Hey, I say do both. Know the word, know prophecy, and let it change your life. If you really believe it, it will change your life. If you really believe it, it will cause you to be in a deeper position of worship, surrender, and obedience, and love. 
When you fall in love with the Bible, you fall in love with the God who wrote it. You fall in love with the author. And Jesus laid it out in case you wonder, how do I know if I love God? How do I know if I really love him right? How do I know if I'm doing this whole thing right, this whole relationship? I don't know. I'm used to religion. How do I know? Jesus made it so easy. If you love me, keep my commandments. Obey me. It'll be natural too. You won't have to work it up. You're just like, I love you, Lord. I trust you with my life. I will do what you tell me to do now in the moment, day by day, moment by moment. And so this antichrist typified and pictured thousands of years earlier by Antiochus Epiphanes, he'll be embraced, he'll be elevated, he'll be empowered over the world militarily, religiously, economically. He'll bring somehow peace to the Middle East. He'll be smooth. And what are his weapons? We learn his weapons as we close in verse 25. These weapons, the Bible, don't forget this, what John warned us. John warned us in the first century that there is a big Antichrist, capital A, one person. But remember what John said, already many Antichrists have entered into the world. The spirit of Antichrist is always already among us. And here's his two tools. Number one in verse 25, he'll be the master. I like how the new NLT, the NLT puts it. The master of deception. He will be the master of deception. Now, I, I, I don't, the closest I can get to this in my mind, like, like that, it, how frustrating it is when I see a magician or an illusionist pull something off that I don't understand how he did it. It just frustrates. Is anybody else, does it frustrate anyone else? Like, I just like, I watch it. I'm fascinated by it. I love it. But automatically, I want to know how he does it. And of course, they don't tell you how to do it. So then I try to figure it out. And I just don't, how did he, I don't understand it. Well, he's the master of deception. It's sleight of hand. They're not, they're not dabbling in the witchcraft stuff. They've learned how to fake you out. And on top of that, they learn how to fake you out and you pay for it. And enjoy it. As I have on many times. He's the But this is much deeper. Master of deception to destroy your life. A magician, an illusionist. He's master of deception to entertain you. But not the Antichrist. Not the many Antichrist. Not the false teachers. Not the cults. They want to destroy your life and divide you, separate you, control you, manipulate you. Secondly... Notice, he will also be an arrogant, he will become arrogant. He will become arrogant. In the New King James, you have that open before you. Number one, he's cunning. And number two, he'll be deceitful. Cunning and deceitful. That's where arrogance is. The Antichrist is crafty. And he'll deceive many. And the greatest deception among us today is self-deception. Can we close here? Would you turn over to James chapter 1? I don't want to develop this. We've done it in another Bible study. If you want to study further on James chapter 1, I would encourage you to do it, beginning in verse 21. Deception is so common, but the most detrimental deception is self-deception. Notice in James chapter 1, verse 21, so get rid of all the filth 
and evil in your lives. You guys facing a problem right now? You got a marriage problem? You got a relationship problem? You got an issue? You're not going to fix anything till you get the filth out of your life. Till you come clean. That's the idea. I'm sure you've heard that before. You got to come clean before the Lord. This idea of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth will make no progress. You've got to come clean before the Lord. Against you and only you have I sinned, God. And once you get right with God, then things start to ease up in the, with others, at least in your own self. You've got to get rid of the filth, church, and the evil in your lives. And humbly accept the word of God planted in your hearts because it has the power to save your soul. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, verse 22. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. It's another word for self-deceived. Self-deceived, you're fooling yourself. And if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, you walk away. You see yourself and walk away and forget what you look like. Now, that's just one of the silliest illustrations in all the Bible. Because I can't really think ever in my life looking in a mirror and walking away and going, I wonder what I look like. I don't remember. And I look back, oh, that's what you look like, Ed. I know what I look like. You know what you look like. You know, I can prove it. If I took a picture right now of my phone of this room and I posted on social media and I said, go home. When you go home tonight, take a look at social media and look at the picture I posted. Who will you look for? Who will you look for? How do you know it's you? Because you don't forget what you look like. And then when you find you go, oh, that didn't come out good. That's what we see all the time. That's what you look like. But I love the illustration because James is being real because he's giving hard words. He goes, look, you want to test where you are in this realm of truth and deception? Let the word of God change your life. You got to, what do you mean? How, do I, how does the word of God change my life? Read it. Do it. Read the Bible, do the Bible. Don't get caught up in all the arguments. Don't get caught up on the things you don't understand. Don't get caught up, well, what's this? And I don't understand. Even the Bible study today is pretty heavy, man. Antiquus, a baby, what is that? Okay, so I'm making it easy for you. Read the Bible and do it. Read the Bible and do it. Let the Lord change you from the inside out. Self-deception is where you come to the place where you think everything's okay and you're not seeing the word of God for what it says. And you walk away because the Bible is de described as a mirror. So the picture and the illustration is you read the Bible, you know what it says, and you walk away saying, I don't know what it says. That's about as much, makes as much sense as you looking in the mirror and go, I don't know what I look like. Or looking at a group picture and go, I'm not in there. What do you mean you're not in there? Right there. Oh, I forgot what I look like. You open up the Bible, you go, I know, it says, I know, but I don't know, I don't know what it says. And that's where the enemy loves, that's where the Antichrist is going to thrive. He's going to take advantage, even as we see in a current crisis, the enemy taking advantage of believers that aren't taking the word of God seriously. And they're finding themselves in a place of disobedience, calling it obedience. Because they've read the Bible, but they say they don't know what it means. Or redefine it so it fits their current culture and narrative and their current cultural opinion. 
So be ready because God has given history in advance. He lays before us the way out, the way of escape, his son Jesus Christ, predicting ahead of time just how it's all going to go down. Not every jot, not every detail, not every, but enough for us to say, whoa, Lord, you are worthy of my attention. You are worthy of my life. You are worthy of my adoration. And you are worthy of my obedience. You don't obey for a church. You don't obey for a pastor. You don't obey for parents. You don't obey for a religious system. You obey out of love, relationship with God who sent his son to die for you. It's the greatest motivation in life is love. Love will move you where nothing else will as you surrender to him. So Father, thank you for this section. Uh, Challenging in some ways as we have a history lesson, but also encouraging that we could go back and see Alexander the Great and we can go back and read the history of Antiochus Epiphanes and we can read about the Maccabean Revolt. Actually, we could take people up uh, into Israel where these things come alive. The very epicenter of your prophetic time clock, we get to walk with our own feet. So we pray right now, God, just as that's on my mind, that you would open the door, that we might return by touring, that, God, you would move the hearts of leaders as they start talking about, oh, it's going to last forever, oh, it's going to be months and months. And I just pray against that, uh, where it's false, and you would move upon the hearts of leaders on the rivers of water. I'm sure people thought about Nebuchadnezzar and thinking, that guy never gets, that guy never changed. That guy, he, he's, he's like, like putting people in the fire, and yet you saved that man. And so I pray, God, for those that are in positions of leadership, I pray that we, God, as a church, would be a loving community that's in our, just somehow, God, you'd give a believer um, and, um, our governor's ear. You'd give a believer our mayor's ear. You'd give a believer um, our new police chief's ear, and on and on, like people I don't even know about, but you know the whole structure. That, God, you would arrest the situation that, as it exists and begin to open doors again. Begin to remove fear. Even now, remove fear. You've not given us a spirit of fear. Lord, you've given us wisdom, but not fear. Sound mind, but not fear. Love, but not fear. So I just pray that into our church, Lord. I pray that biblical truth to be manifested in our church, to be manifested on those on our church watching online, those that are listening on the radio, Lord, bring about a removal of fear in Jesus' name. We pray that upon our lives that we might walk in confidence, no matter what we're fearing tonight, no matter what we're afraid of, that you would have your way in our lives. And if you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Jesus, today is the day. Today is the day. That today you understood just a sliver of history. God wrote it in advance thousands of years before it occurred. He also predicted that he would send his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And he knows if and when you'll respond. He already knows. We don't know. He already knows. So we like to find out. We want to obey God. What I'm about to do today, I'm, I'm obeying God as an example to you of what I just shared. I'm obeying God that to tell you that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want to give you a chance to confess him. And so if you're here in the room and you'd say, today is the day I want to fall, I want to repent of my sins 
and follow Jesus Christ. Would you just stand to your feet? I want to pray with you. Just make a public acknowledgement of your desire to follow Jesus in this room. Of course, you guys online, you can stand up right where you're at or on the radio. Obviously, if you're driving, just maybe you need to pull over. Maybe it's an emotional moment for you. Just pull over and, and let's do business with your heart between you and God. But for us in the room, we get to be a part of it. Like that's one of the blessings of gathering together. We get to see literally with our own eyes. And every time somebody responds, listen, every time someone responds, it reminds us the people we love, there's still time for them. There's still time for them. There's still a world to be saved, a world to be shared with, still time. But for us now, right here, I want to invite you and give you the chance to do that. Do you need to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior today? An expression of the belief in your heart, an acknowledgement of your sinful rebellion against God. I know it's kind of a heavy word, isn't it? Rebellion. You never thought yourself as a rebel. But the Bible describes you as an enmity. It actually uses a harder, harder enmity, like you're an enemy of God. Jesus put it this way. You know, if you are not for me, you're against me. You can't take a middle road. You can't say, well, maybe next week, Ed, may I'll think about it. Well, while you're thinking about it, you've taken a position against him. And so for, for those that might be watching online, listening, even if you didn't stand here, you can still, standing doesn't matter. What, stand, you did standing for us, really, and for you, because you're going to need it. I can't tell how many times I think back of the altar call that just gave me encouragement. No, my life really has changed. It really has changed. I remember, I remember the moment. And so standing, walking up, or whatever we end up doing, it's always a moment for you. But it's also for us, because we get really excited. And so it's okay. You can pray sitting down. You can pray watching online, the radio, wherever you are. God will hear your prayer. And you could say something like this. God, I admit that I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me. And I believe Jesus rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I'm asking you, God, to help me turn away and repent of my sinful past and to follow you all the days of my life. And so, Father, I just pray right now by faith that your word will not return void and that it will be deposited in the precious men and women of this room. Believers encouraged, unbelievers convicted, confessors saved. And we pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.